what's going on, people? I would like to welcome all of you to another Q on One edition of the Talk to Q Radio Show. My name is Quincy, and this is my show. And with the Q on Ones, what I like to do is interview people. Sometimes they can be local entrepreneurs, or they could be someone um, who's doing their thing worldwide. Um, so it's an opportunity for you to get to know these people up and close and learn their story and what gave them the passion to do what they do or provide the type of service they provide. So please sit back and enjoy the show and please be encouraged to share. A lot of people, including myself, kind of do their thing by word of mouth, you know, so the more you spread the knowledge about the show, then the more people who can tune in and grow this thing and make it bigger. And it also gives more support for the people who I bring on the show who are looking to get their product or services out to the masses. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. How's it going, people? All right. I want to welcome all of you to another Q on one edition of the Talk to Q radio show. My name is Quincy. This is my show. And those of you who truly know me on a personal level know that I am down with James Bond. 007 was one of my heroes growing up, and I'm a big fan of the movies. So it's been long overdue for me to have someone on to discuss this, uh, to discuss James Bond with me. He's the author of a recently released book, The James Bond Movie encyclopedia from the golden state of california please welcome mr stephen j rubin to the talk to q radio show stephen how's it going very very good quincy here's a little treat for you <laughs> oh that's nice a little gold finger there <laughs> shirley basie Brings back some good memories, I'll tell you. 64, I, I know I'm dating myself, but I I remember that Christmas very well. I had just started reading the little paperbacks. They had started to pop up. My mm -hmm. dad would go on business trips, and he'd bring back books, and he always brought back Westerns. And I never wanted to read Westerns. I watched them on TV. I was a Western guy, but didn't want to read about Westerns. But one day, he plopped Goldfinger in my lap. Now, you got to picture this. I'm 12 years old. He's giving me a picture with a naked woman on the cover. Now, she's basically <laughs> covered in gold. But uh, I said, what's this? And I started cracking open the book to read it. And I'm reading about sexy women and James Bond. I'm saying, holy moly. And I just kind of, uh, I, I got into it. You know, I didn't know anything about spy fiction at that time. I was reading, yeah, yeah. you know, and um this coincided with the big hoopla about the Bond series. The first two James Bond movies, Dr. No and From Russia Would Love, were mm -hmm. released in the United States with very little fanfare. You know, they were just good action movies. They came and did very good business, but there were no premieres. There was no real hoopla. They knew they had something special with Goldfinger, though. So that Christmas of 64... Uh, which was a big spy thing going on because that was the, that was the fall that NBC had introduced the man from uncle. So there mm -hmm. was kind of a spy craze going on in America and Goldfinger was so successful. Some of the theaters in the East were open 24 hours a day to accommodate the crowds. I mean, this, wow. is, this is big, big event movie stuff. 
And I go to the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. I sit down with my parents and I'm watching a movie that I just read the book. And I was just enthralled, completely enthralled. Yeah, that movie, um, I, I guess what I remember mostly about that movie, well, of course, yeah, you had the naked woman covered in gold paint. <laughs> but um, them breaking into Fort Knox, because, you know, Fort Knox was always, it always seemed like a mythical place to a lot of people back in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And so I, I was born in 71, so I didn't see the movie until later on. But when I saw it and to see what they set up as far as what Fort Knox looked like on the inside was phenomenal. You know, it was almost like it was giving people a peek into something. We didn't know if it was real or not, of course. But I mean, their vision of what Fort Knox looked like was was pretty cool. Well, I had the opportunity to interview the production designer, Ken Adam. And he, um, they went over to Kentucky from England because the James Bond movies were based in England, even though they were produced by a couple of American producers named Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. And um, the, uh, the way Ken tells it, he asked for permission from the, the government to go inside Fort Knox to uh, see what it looked hmm. like. And they refused to give him permission. <laughs> And uh, as the way Ken relates, he says, uh, the the guy told him, you know, we can't really allow you to go in there because you expect to see a lot of gold and (laughs) you're going to be very disappointed. But the way Ken described it, he said that in a in a repository like that, it's little rooms with gold inside. It's nothing spectacular. So when he came back to England to build Fort Knox interior on a soundstage, he let his imagination go wild. He stacked gold 30 feet high. The, um, the, the whole imagination went wild. And uh, they, they basically created kind of a fantasy set of what Fort Knox would look at. The exterior, by the way, was completely built full size on the back lot. So it's an amazing outdoor set, you know, because they, mm-hmm. they had to blow up that wall so that the, the Korean people could bring in the A-bomb that they're going to explode in there. Yeah. By the way, the book was very different. Uh, in the original Ian Fleming novel, Goldfinger planned to actually steal the gold. They're going to load oh. the trucks. But mm-hmm. uh, they came up with, a, uh, I thought Richard Maybaum, who wrote the screenplay for the movie, came up with the ingenious idea that Goldfinger plans to explode an A-bomb and Fort Knox completely irradiating America's gold supply for 58 years. Yeah, I thought that was a great idea um, to the plot to make it essentially unusable, you know, for an extended period of time. And I I thought that was pretty genius. Um, But I did not know there was a difference in the book. But I I know that the Ian Fleming novels and the movies had quite a few um, differences. Uh, So I, I can't say to which one would be better on screen. But I've been very pleased with what they've done with Bond over the years. Oh, sure. And another little anecdote from Goldfinger, as you may recall, the lead female villain is named Pussy Galore. Yes. And uh, there was some concern uh, amongst the film producers that the censors at that time would never allow that name to uh, appear in a, an American or British motion picture. So the PR guy who represented um, Eon Productions, came up with an ingenious idea of taking the actress Honor Blackman, who was playing Pussy, 
to go to uh, a royal benefit and have her photo taken <laughs> with Prince uh, Charles. And uh, <laughs> the idea, I think actually it's Prince Philip, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, whatever, whatever the name of Prince Charles' father was. I think mm-hmm. he, uh, uh, anyway, um, they gave an exclusive to a newspaper if they would print the caption, Pussy and the Prince. Because everybody knew <laughs> honor had been a cap. So the, the article came out, the picture came out, the caption came out, and nobody squawked about it. So they felt emboldened to call the girl Pussy Galore, even though Richard Maybaum, the writer, was already set to change her name to Kitty if it, if it had to change. But yeah. uh, we, uh, my favorite scene in that movie is when James Bond has been uh, tranquilized and he wakes up on this jet and he looks up at this very beautiful woman and she says, my name is Pussy Galore. And James <laughs> Bond says, I must be dreaming. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's so many moments in that and, and things kind of changed over the years. And I know we'll we'll get to that. But as far as the encyclopedia, and I mean, it basically is an encyclopedia from A to Z. You have just all things Bond in this book. Was it difficult for you to get access to all of this? I mean, this is a ton of information. I've been writing about Bond since the late 70s. Um, My first book was called The James Bond Films of Behind the Scenes History. It was more of a history book in, uh, you know, in chronological order, talking about the making of the films. And when I was done with that, I had a lot of information still uh, available. And I was approached by a publisher in Chicago to, they had had success with a Marilyn Monroe encyclopedia and Elvis Presley encyclopedia. So they asked me if I would do one on Bond. And I actually liked the idea because in, writing encyclopedias are kind of fun. You get to pick the categories you want to work on. You, uh, you get to learn more about all the key players. I have biographies on virtually every actor of note in the series and a lot of the key creative people. So we get to know a little bit more about them. And then we get to have some fun as well. We get to pick our favorite uh, characters and their backgrounds and some of the things they say, some of the gadgets they use, the villains, the girls. So, and, and, and of course you have to pack the book with over 400 pictures to keep the fans happy. And this is the first time I've had color in my book. So I'm very happy about that. And it's 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 interesting to write it too because using a computer, you can add entries all time without having to reset the book. Imagine having to write an encyclopedia without a computer, where literally every time you add a new entry, you got to change the whole structure of the book. Yeah. With a computer, with a modern computer, you just insert things and voila, voila, you're there. Yeah, definitely makes it much easier. And how long did it take you from the from the moment you started this encyclopedia to completion? I mean, how long are we talking here? Well, this is the fourth edition. The first edition was published in 1990. And I would say that edition took me about two years. I spent about a okay. year collecting the information. The, the, the one problem with doing a James Bond encyclopedia is when you finish it and turn in your manuscript, a few min- months later when they announce a new Bond movie, it becomes immediately out of date. So you try to get ahead of it. And this latest edition, I have some good information on the latest Bond movie, No Time to Die, which, of course, has been postponed several times. 
Right. But it'll be out supposedly in April. Who knows? Uh, so I have some I should be able to be a couple years ahead of the game here. But um, the first encyclopedia took me about a year to collect the information and then another year to find the photos because it's it's a battle. You know, you're looking it's you're looking for key photos all over the world. And, and I go to collectors because because the James Bond series is is over 50 years old now, close to 60 years old, that uh, there are people who have been collecting materials for years. So in this latest incarnation, I went over to Europe. I went to friends in uh, France, Sweden, and England, and I found these photos. Okay. And yeah, and I perused some of the the book itself and had some great photos, um, one of them being the um, aforementioned inside of Fort Knox um, and a scene with, with Odd Job. And I, I think the photos are very interesting, some from behind the cameras as well, so you can see them actually filming and directing and producing. And so that's kind of cool. And I know that you had to interview and, and talk to a ton of people in order to put this all together. But I mean, who are some of the more interesting people that you met in the process of writing this book? Well, this goes even to before this book with my first book, because I was able to utilize the same information, uh, though in an encyclopedia form. One of my favorite interviews was with Albert R. Broccoli, who basically created the series uh, based on the Ian Fleming novels. And he was a fascinating man. The, uh, his, his legacy is picked up by his daughter, who produces the movies now, Barbara Broccoli, with her stepbrother, Michael Wilson. And Cubby, as he was called, told me interesting stories about the making of the series and how challenging it was to sell it in the first place. Um, it's an interesting story. Ian Fleming wrote these books starting back in the 50s, and uh, they weren't selling too well, and especially in the United States, because nobody really knew who James Bond was until it was announced in, uh, I think it was 1961, uh, by, a, by a White House correspondent that John F. Kennedy had read from Russia Love, and it was in his top 10 of his reading list. And that little reference to the fact that the president, the very charismatic president, uh, was a Bond fan, lifted book sales considerably and encouraged United Artists to buy the series from uh, Albert R. Broccoli and his partner, Harry Saltzman. The first James Bond movie, which was Dr. No in 1962, was made for just a little over $1 million. Yeah. Now, to look at that in perspective, um, 58 years later, the latest James Bond movie was announced in one of the papers recently as costing $301 million. And you, <laughs> you look at those numbers and you, I mean, if, if uh, the people who are long gone came back in time or came ahead in time and saw that, they'd probably all die of heart attacks to those kind of numbers. Most definitely. I mean, when you think about from a million to where we are now, and that's why they really want to have a theatrical release of the, the the latest movie, because to release it at home is going to cost them a lot of money. You know, and if they can go worldwide, I mean, they can easily get close to a billion dollars, if not more. So they definitely want to make their money back by trying to hold out until this whole coronavirus thing is over. They're they're hoping for those Skyfall numbers, the the movie, the, the two Bond movies ago with uh, Dale singing the title tune and Daniel Craig and his uh, his uh, third effort. Um, 
made over a billion dollars worldwide. So you're absolutely right. They want to try to go for the the, the big brass ring there. And yes. uh, uh, I'm hoping, I can't picture myself seeing a James Bond movie for the first time on my TV. I don't care how big my TV is. It's still not a theater. And you got to be in the anticipation alone, sitting in a movie theater with a couple hundred people, you know, waiting for a Bond movie to come on. It's the attention is palpable. Yes, definitely. I agree. And I mean, you know, Bond has been a big screen draw for, you know, almost 60 years now with the 25th movie coming, hopefully in April. But why do you think the franchise has resonated with so many people over the years? I mean, once people got on board, it just seemed to take off. These were very shrewd producers. And I think that one of the hallmarks of the series over the years has been the fact that at its very root, it's a family movie. They don't have bare naked women. They don't have F words. The violence is kept to a certain level, although it's gotten more violent over the years and less sexy. But I think that because uh, because the subject has stayed within those guidelines and because the quality of the films and the filmmaking has been very high, I think that's helped for the longevity of the series. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the not all the movies are great. <laughs> There's a few turkeys in the group. Uh, but I think that uh, even the ones that aren't so good have wonderful elements to them. I mean, they're spectacular. Yes. The Roger Moore films, which were spectacularly successful and introduced a whole new generation of kids to Bond, um, were a little too funny for me. I mean, they were uh, they got to the point where at the end they were getting real silly. And, you know, Bond in A View to a Kill being chased through San Francisco on a fire truck, you know, was something out of the Keystone Cops. And I said, you know, and I just didn't like that. And Roger was getting a little old for the role and it was time to move on. But um, I think that uh, the PG-13 quality and the, 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 the creative quality of the pictures, I think, has helped with the longevity. And it's probably the only series in history you know, maybe Star Wars, because Star Wars is now 50 years, almost 50 years old, too. But I think it's really uh, generation after generation has passed on the excitement of the Bond movies. And they've actually picked some very good actors to play James Bond. And, you know, when Sean Connery left, some people thought it was over. But yeah. between Rodney's success and then, you know, Pierce Brosnan and now Daniel Craig and, you know, Timothy Dalton did a couple. He, he was OK. And George Lacey <laughs> did one. And Although I thought it was great, but, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful series. It's fun to write about because it never seems to end. You know, I I don't doubt that I'll be having this conversation in another 20 years talking about the next edition of uh, the Bond Encyclopedia. Well, that's the thing. I'm not sure what's going to happen after this one because we've heard the rumors of James Bond is retiring and, you know, they're moving on so to speak. And I guess you, you mentioned that the movie stopped being sexy. It became more violent. And do you think society kind of changed what James Bond was? Because growing up, you know, it was all about United States versus Russia or, you know, the Cold War and all that type of spy stuff. But then it just society changed and the stories kind of changed. Do you think that's had a real impact on this franchise kind of being un? certain going forward? Well, I don't know about the uncertainty, but I think that uh, 
things have changed. I mean, the concept of a bed hopping agent in this Me Too generation is not really kind of um, working really well, especially with women. I think yeah. that women are a major film going audience. And I think that Bond has become a little, little more, um, you know, uh, or I should say a little less uh, frisky as he used to be. Uh, I think that I, I kind of miss that because that's kind of that 60s period where everything was on the table. Now everything has to be a little bit more careful. It was pointed out one time to me by someone who said that, you know, they were talking about whether James Bond respects women and, that he, you know, is he, is he exploiting women? Should he not be bed hopping? And, and the guy pointed out, this guy doesn't know if he's going to be alive tonight. You know, he goes out there every day risking his life to save the world. You know, he just wants a little bit of pleasure. And uh, that's what happens. Now, that may have worked in 76 and maybe it doesn't work as much now. But um, along with that, Quincy, is the is the competition. You know, when James Bond started out in 63, 64, uh, there was no Bourne series. There were no Mission Impossible movies. There were no Fast and the Furious car, car chases. There were no Kingsman, you know, those kinds of shows. Now Bond has to compete with other genre films in the box office. And uh, right. I think that's uh, up the ante each time. That's why the budgets keep on rising. You know, it's kind of like what I call the Harry Houdini syndrome, where you keep trying to do the next best trick to woo and wow the audience. And I think that, uh, you know, they've done some amazing things in the series and they continue to do that, but it's tough. It's tough to keep topping yourself and the pressure is on the producers every time. Yeah, that has to be very difficult. And so your book contains material, let's say on, I mean, the movies, producers, casting and all of that stuff. But two of the main things that drew people to the Bond cult were the villains and the Bond girls. And that was just, if you were a Bond villain or you were a Bond girl, a lot of times it just brought a certain notoriety to your acting career. And so I, I'm, I'm assuming that since your book essentially includes everything, that they can find a ton of information about all of the villains and all of the Bond girls that have ever been. Oh yeah, absolutely. Particularly the girls. I mean, I've got a, I've got a ton of pretty girls in this, uh, in this book because the Bond films are known for the most gorgeous women in the world and uh, in various stages of undress. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, um, I couldn't do this book without showing those, those wonderful, beautiful women. Uh, you know, they, they have really um, elevated the series. And then of course the villains are the key to the success of the series. I think that you can measure the best James Bond movies on the quality of the villain. For instance, uh, the first Daniel Craig film, Casino Royale, which was released in 2006, had Le Chiffre, played by Mads, Mads Mikkelsen, uh, mm -hmm. the um, Scandinavian actor. And he's the one who has the eye that drips blood. Yeah. And he's playing poker. And he was terrific. The follow-up movie, Quantum of Solace, uh, with Dominic... Uh, with uh, with uh, Matthew Amalric as the lead playing Dominic Green was kind of a bland, dull businessman. He didn't have mm -hmm. any of the panache of Mads. Certainly wasn't the Goldfinger type. And I think the movie suffered from that. But they came back in the next film, Skyfall, and we had uh, Javier Bardem 
playing Raul Silva, who's the guy with the, the teeth, you know, the mm-hmm. and all that whole thing. And he was great. And uh, I, I think that's been a big plus for the series. And I think you can measure the best Bond films usually by the quality of the villain. Yeah. And I think two of my favorites, ironically, um, didn't really have speaking parts. Um, and that was Jaws. Everyone loved Jaws. And um, I mentioned Odd Job earlier, who was mute. And so, but they had the cool names and a lot of them were just super tough. You know, some of the, the big bruising guys that he just, you can hit them and they wouldn't move. And it was just always cool as a kid growing up and wondering what, you know, this particular villain brings to the table. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, and the gadgets, of course, you know. The, what yes. Was, and the cars. And I, can, car. I can't forget about the cars, the Aston Martin and. Um, sure. you know, then, um, I think they had a BMW for a few, for a few films and, and the Lotus. So, yes. And so there was so much that was tied to bond. I mean, as far as I recall, some of the first product placements that I've ever seen done in movies occurred in bond movies that I can remember, you know, where you might have, um, a, you might have a certain type of watch on, you know, and that watch got advertisement or he drove a certain type of vehicle or. I mean, so there was product placements in some of those early movies, you know, that a lot of people may not have paid attention to. Oh, yeah. There's lots of money to be made there. And it's funny because, as I recall, because I interviewed both Ken Adam and John Steers, who did the special effects for Goldfinger, where the Aston Martin was introduced. Um, Aston Martin didn't want to give them free cars. They had to purchase <laughs> three or four cars from Aston Martin to put all those little gadgets in them. So mm-hmm. they realized the trove that they've had. And since then, probably the last 50 years, they've sold a ton of Aston Martins because it's so associated with James Bond. Definitely. And so we'll get ready to wrap things up. But I did want to ask you, you've also written a book about the Twilight Zone TV series. Yes, yes. I was a big fan of the original, uh, the black and white series from the 19th. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. Yeah. I, I was introduced to Rod Serling's widow because he died very young. Rod Serling was only 50 when he died, died in 1975, Hmm. uh, sadly. And because a a legend, a legendary writer who came from radio and live television and a a, a soul of uh, he he was very much involved in uh, in all sorts of issues, including racism and anti-Semitism and uh, child abuse and all of these things he couldn't do in his live television because TV was very uncontroversial in the 1950s and early 60s. So he came up with the idea of coming up with his morality stories using science fiction as a disguise. So yeah. he, he could do racism, but he'd have to disguise it in a, a science fiction format. And uh, he wrote uh, 92 of the 156 episodes himself. And that series once again, I thought it would be wonderful to explore all the people who were in that series because they assembled one of the great casts in history. By the way, he was one of the first uh, producers in Hollywood to have a show with an entirely African-American cast. And hmm. uh, that was very unusual for 1960. Yes. And I, I think that uh, he, he was a, a, a progressive leader on many levels. And I think I, I kind of wish he was around today. He would be high, carrying the highest sign at the highest protest. <laughs> but I had fun. I had fun with that book. And uh, it turned out swell. Well, same publisher, Chicago Review Press. Both of my books 
the James Bond movie encyclopedia and the Twilight Zone encyclopedia are available on Amazon. Okay, great, great. And um, I was just thinking about the Twilight Zone. I remember a couple of episodes that I really enjoyed. One was the guy on the plane that looked out the window and would see the figure on the wing. That was and, William, William Shatner from yes, uh, Star Trek. Yes. And the other was, um, I think it was a man who was in an accident or something, but his face was wrapped up. And when they unwrapped his face, he looked what we thought was normal, but everyone else looked, you know, had like these pig faces or something. Oh, and, yeah. they, actually, and they thought he was the ugly one. It was actually a woman. And yeah. uh, okay, okay. It was one of the most carefully produced episodes. Uh, we won't give it away for the viewers who haven't or the listeners who don't know it, but it's called Eye of the Beholder. And okay. let's say that the lady, uh, it has, well, like a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, it has what they call the O. Henry type of twist. You know, uh, Rod was a big student of O. Henry, the great short story writer, and his hallmark was he always had kind of a twisted ending to give you a real fright at the end or a surprise. And uh, yeah. the, the Twilight Zones were just like that. Yeah, yeah. And have you seen the newer series that's on um, CBS? Of the episodes. I'm a big fan of Jordan Peele's work because I thought mm -hmm. that that uh, that uh, uh, is it called Get Out? Yeah, uh, Get Out. Right. I thought that yeah. was one of the most clever horror movies I'd seen in a decade. Yeah. So, but I I I gotta tell you, you put the Twilight Zone in color, and you lose half the atmosphere. And for some reason, they have not been able to capture that lightning in the bottle again. It's a very challenging thing because they've rebooted the zone twice before yeah. this one. And they put out these color episodes and they're OK. But yeah. I don't think they have any of the power of the original black and white, because when you put a show in black and white, you're showing the public something they don't see every day. So mm -hmm. already they're thinking of something. This is a little weird. And another thing I discovered in my research, you talked earlier about product placement in the Bond series. Mm -hmm. Rod Serling forbid that. There, you watch those 156 episodes and you won't see anything familiar. You don't mm -hmm. see people driving by a Shell gas station or a McDonald's or the equivalent of 1960. Nothing to make you familiar with your story. So you, he was able to kind of, balance a, a bit of tension just on the fact that you're not seeing anything familiar, which keeps you a little bit off balance. Yeah, interesting. And, and yeah, sometimes I've seen a few episodes of the Jordan Peele version. I like it, but sometimes I just wish people would just start their own franchise. You know, don't use that name. Maybe start your own thing and go there because it, it's quite the Twilight Zone I remember. I mean, it's, it's still enjoyable, but not quite as I remember. Right. Right. I think people um, find the anthology idea an interesting idea. I know that I don't I haven't seen all of them, but people talk about the Black Mirror, which is out of England, yeah. which is very much a Twilight Zone type show. Uh, but they call it Black Mirror. Um, yeah, I think. Um, but I have such a reverence for the original because they were just like little movies, you know, and they were shot. Mm -hmm. Them were, uh, the majority of them were shot beautifully on film by George Clemens, who was one of the great cinematographers of that period. And those they've been pressed into Blu-rays now. And the quality is so great that you see things that you weren't supposed to see because the quality <laughs> there's a there's a great episode with um, Donald Pleasance where he plays a college professor. And there's a scene in his office where he has his diploma behind him. 
Well, it's a little further away. You don't, you don't see it real well. And his character name is a certain character name. But the Blu-ray quality is so good now, you can see exactly the name on that diploma, and it's not his character name. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that kind of thing popped up quite a bit. It's a good episode. It's called The Changing of the Guard. And um, I think it was one of the uh, end episodes of the first or second season. And he's wonderful. And, you know, Donald Pleasant's just wonderful actor. I always remember. Yeah, when I would do Halloween. Yeah, yeah. I remember him from those Halloween movies, you know, yes. the guy. Yes. Okay. So now that you've completed this book on Bond, what's next? Well, what do you have going on now? Well, I'm involved in all different arenas. I, I, I'm a working screenwriter and producer in Hollywood, so I'm always trying to get films and TV shows made, which is very challenging right now. I won't deny that. Uh, but I, I've been working at it now for about um, 20 years. I, I became a producer in the year 2002. I produced a baseball comedy for Showtime called Bleacher Bums. It's okay. all about the fans who follow the Chicago Cubs, although we couldn't call them the Chicago Cubs. We called them the Chicago Bruins. Uh, I'm still upset with Major League Baseball for not letting me do it because the, the fans in the stand, they gamble on every pitch, you know, whether it's a strike or a ball or whatever. <laughs> and Major League Baseball says we're not cooperating with anything involving gambling. And of course, this is the same organization that allows billboards on every stadium for casinos. But um, yeah, I made my debut there. And then the following year, I did a World War II drama called Silent Night, which ran on the Hallmark Channel. And that was a true story of a truce in the Ardennes on Christmas Eve, 1944, when German and American combat troops actually met in a cabin and a German woman held a truce for 12 hours. And it's a true story. And I'm out there, you know, I've done some documentaries, but I'm focusing right now on comedy because I feel that America has to learn to laugh again. And not raunchy comedy. I think a lot of our comedies that get produced, especially in the movies, are raunchy that you can't take your 80-year-old grandmother mm -hmm. or your eight-year-old kid to see. And we're kind of focusing, we're inspired by films like Ghostbusters and Night at the Museum and Back to the Future, which were family comedies that were so much fun. Okay. And so I, I have to ask you this. I completely slipped my mind. Um, what exactly is your favorite James Bond movie? The first one we mentioned. Goldfinger. Goldfinger? Okay. It was the first one I ever saw. And 50, 56 years later, it's still the favorite one. Although I have to say the first Daniel Craig, Casino Royale, is yeah. right up there now. They're, they're yeah. neck and neck. I think those are the two best in the series. Okay. All right. I, I think my favorite is Dr. No. I know I've seen it more than the others. Okay. Uh, I just love, you know, he went to Jamaica to, and, uh, well, you'll be interested to know that today, and I post on Facebook almost every day called This Day in James Bond Movie History. Okay. So we are celebrating the memory of John Kitzmiller, who played Quarrel. Okay. He was born on this day in 1913. Wow. And, uh, he, he was a, a really wonderful actor. I loved him in that show. He brought a lot of... Uh, of dimension and a little bit of humor to that character. Yes, he was very afraid of the dragon. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I and now I remember there was a Quarrel Jr. Um, in a later movie. Now I don't know if they were actually related or not in real life. I don't really know the tie-in with that, but I do remember picking up on that um, a few movies later. There was a Quarrel Jr. The first Roger Moore is called Live and Let Die. It has okay. that Paul McCartney 
famous mm-hmm. song. And there was a Quarrel Jr. And he is, uh, he's not, I mean, the actor's a different actor, obviously. Yeah. Sadly, um, um, uh, John, John died only three years after the release of Dr. No. I mean, he, uh, he was, uh, I think he was in his 50s. But no, it was a different actor. But yeah, they brought back Quarrel because they went back to Jamaica for that movie. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, and I'm sure I'll see all of this in the encyclopedia. You will. You will. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, I think that's my favorite. Goldfinger was great. The first one I ever saw in the theater, um, I was about 12 years old, I think, or 11 or 12. And that was Octopussy. That was the first one I was actually old enough to go through a, the- a theater and see in 83. Well, that, that movie takes a lot of brick baths occasionally, but mm-hmm. I think that it's my favorite Roger Moore. I'll tell you, there's a lot of atmosphere in that movie. Mm-hmm. And but, although on on the surface, it seems ridiculous that James Bond dresses as a clown to disarm an A-bomb. <laughs> I mean, you get thrown out of a room if you mention that. But it, Roger wrote <laughs> that and the director, John Glenn, Glenn mixed it uh, with a lot of tension. And uh, I like that movie. I, I like that movie a lot. Okay. All right. So where can people, you mentioned Amazon, but um, I'll let you mention it again. If you want, where can people get the book, the James Bond movie encyclopedia? Just type into Google, the James Bond movie encyclopedia. And there's a lot of places you can purchase it. If you have a bookstore near you, I would not doubt that it is on sale there. And if it isn't, they'll order it for you. And certainly patronizing your local bookstore is a good idea. These days, these stores are holding on for dear life. Um, I also have a Facebook page called the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, where you see these postings I've been talking about. Okay. And I also have a posting a Facebook page uh, just called Steve Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. I also post on LinkedIn and Instagram, all the local social sites. Okay. Well, I would definitely find that Bond page on Facebook and like it so I can get caught up on some of the things you've posted over the years. But um, Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time to join this Q on one edition of the Talk to Q radio show. And one more question about the book itself. I just noticed something on the cover. Who designed your cover? I love the 007 that's kind of in the title there. That's kind of slick the way that was done. Well, we got standing next to the modern version of the Aston Martin. We've got Daniel Craig yeah. there on the right. Of course, there's Pierce Brosnan. And next to him is uh, the girl from Dr. No, Ursula Andress, who played. Yes. Hunt. And then we have George Lazenby, and uh, uh, actually, uh, actually, what I'm, what you're looking at there is an earlier cover of my book. We've uh, changed it up a little bit. Uh, we oh, got okay. Donald Pleasance. We have George Lazenby on the cover now, but Con- Sean has always been at the top of the book. Uh, he's Sean Connery, being my favorite Bond, will always be at the top for for my money. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, definitely Sean Connery for me as well. The recently passed Sean Connery. Well, Steve, again, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do the show. And, um, you know, when you update it in the future, then maybe we can do it again and then talk a little more about Bond. Whenever you want to talk about movies on any level, Quincy, you talk to me. Okay, sounds good. I appreciate it. Okay, man. And that's going to do it for this T2Q podcast. Go to TalkToQ.com. And that way you can sign up for the email newsletter and be alerted to new shows as they come out. I'm on Twitter at TalkToQ, and that's Talk, the number two Q. 
So I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast of T2Q, and I'll see you next time.